we've had people bring in, and I don't mean service dogs. I mean like little chihuahuas and, you know, show up at the door with a dog. Dog goes everywhere with me. Is it a service chihuahua? <laughs> no. Okay, well, you can't, you can't come in. Welcome to Brilliant, a podcast about innovation, design, and experience. I'm your host, Justin Dobb, president of Manyani. And on this week's podcast, just in time for James Beard Week, we get innovative, fun, and delicious with Nick Kakonis, co-owner of the Alinea Group. Wow, you sound so good now. Well, welcome. I can talk like this. Hello. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. You sound amazing. Welcome to Brilliant Podcast. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I was talking um, just before you decided to hit the record button. We were talking about how uh, a friend of mine who works at Talk, um, we were having this conversation where he was recording on an analog four track uh, and was looking for old cassette tapes to to use and I was like geez why do you want to do that to yourself like I couldn't wait when I was a kid to to be able to bounce tracks on a computer instead of you know doing so in analog and he was like well the constraints of it really forced me into a good place like it I get two takes and I have to move on and and that analog sound is great and I think that's true of a lot of creative projects right I totally agree so like when I first started trying to to record and and most of the people who listen to this podcast have never seen this room we're standing in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, well, you should describe it then because, well, I'll, I'll describe it because you live here, so you probably can't describe it. Um, it's small, it's not big. What, is it maybe like 12 by 12, something like that? Not even by 12, it's probably 10, 10 by 12. And then there's just stacks of equipment, uh, mostly audio, uh, probably 10, I'm gonna go with 10 drum machines of various types, <laughs> um, mixing boards, uh, old keyboards, new keyboards that look old, and then uh, a collection of comic characters, some old keyboards that have nothing to do with anything as far as I can tell. So actually, Those old Yamahas. So There's no way you use that old Yamaha CX-5M music computer, which looks really cool. It's, it's an MSX computer, but actually what's built into it is a, um, a DX7. So that's cool. I yeah. never knew that existed. Yeah, well, <laughs> and that keyboard used to be something that in high school, um, Kim Baum. Here you go. Shout out to Kim <laughs> Baum, who had one of those in high school, and she was a classically trained keyboardist, and it was really good. So that that keyboard up on uh, the top shelf um, actually started this madness, and I actually just got this thing, and I got it free. But at, when it was new, it was about twenty five hundred dollars in nineteen eighty four. And it was the first keyboard I ever saw with MIDI. Wow. And I don't know if you remember. Do you remember Karn's music? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So so I, you save all your shit just like <clears throat> I do. Yes. <laughs> My wife is always trying to, like, do you still want this old keyboard? Yes. Yes. Yes, of course. So I have this vivid memory. I had just read um, Jerzy Kaczynski, Pinball. I don't know if you know that novel, but you'd love it. It's about a guy who, his father owns a classical record label, and he records everything himself using MIDI, and he's a huge pop star, and nobody knows who he is. And they describe in that book, basically, this keyboard. And I remember being in this store, Carnes, with my brother, and just being fascinated by it. But of course, it was, you know, 2500 Really expensive, yeah, yeah, right. At the time, that's sure. like $5,500. Well, like, oh, at least, yeah. And... Um, you know, and so and it was just stuck in my head. And when I graduated college, I'm like, I need to get things like that. And and you had pointed out earlier, I've got a Sonic Mirage up here. I've got an old Emu Proteus. And then 
down on the bottom shelf is an old Roland D5, and that was kind of my first MIDI rig. And you know what I you know what I managed <coughs> to do. So so we're standing in some of this acoustic foam, right? Yep. And for a long time, I had uh, I had my Profit 600 in a flight case of this foam. Yeah. And unused at my last home for like 10 years, had nowhere to put it, just left it in in its flight case. Um, what I didn't know is that this foam over time just melts. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it just so it did get all down into the. It got down into it, and so I spent a long time air dusting it out and alcoholing it out and all that, cleaning the thing out, thinking it's not going to work turned it on and then I needed to restore the factory settings. Uh-huh. So guess what I had to do when I wanted to restore the factory settings? I'm guessing a tape deck. Correct. I had to pull out a cassette tape, which I found because um, it was in the flight case. And then what I had to do is find a cassette player because right. I didn't have one that could I could go to an RCA jack to the input of the back of the Prophet 600. And the coolest part, you know, you get that old modem sound, like the yep. handshake and all that. Yep. And then uh, it actually worked first try. <laughs> I was mind blown that the whole thing worked. Yeah. So there's an old drumulator on, the, you know, it was kind of the first real sample-based drum machine on the, on the rack over here, as you pointed out, my drum machine fetish. That I had the same problem. I I, I got it used really cheap because it was, you know, theoretically broken. And I found an audio file of that. The cassette restore online plugged it right into oh, the. Oh, that that yes, I didn't even. Th- I mean, of course, and, of and course, that was so stupid of me. <laughs> you can find anything online. Yes, I mean, weirdly, I didn't even think of that, and that was like a year ago because I was like, that's not going to exist. But of course, it does. Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of stuff around here, and I really, you know, that when you looked up there, the thing with a kind of looks like a music keyboard. That's that's a, the thing I was talking about. Yeah, it's yeah. a sequencer. Actually, works. Still has a floppy drive that works on it. So. Well, it's interesting how everybody, when you look at old stuff like that, it was all like skeuomorphic design, right? So it yeah. had to look like what it was supposed to look like. So if it was a music instrument, it had to look like a music instrument. But if it was a computer, they tried to make it look more computer-like. Yeah. Which is kind of weird, too. Yeah, I think we're finally getting over that, but we'll see. It, everything goes in trends. It goes back and forth, yeah. So, sure. so, you know, we, you know, we're kind of getting into kind of what I wanted to talk to you about today. And uh, how do you design an experience, right? And um, I actually referenced uh, in a blog post recently the difference between experience design and service design and really talked about, you know, I had heard another interview with you talking about how you created talk. And what I'd like you to do is talk a little bit about what inspired you to create that and and where you thought about changing, you know, the the nature of the service, not just the interface that you were creating around reservations. Yeah, I mean, so to to do that properly, I think you have to back up to to the fact that I didn't know anything about running a restaurant when we opened Alinea, right? I'd never actually, like a lot of people at least work as a waiter or something growing up, and I never did any of that. So the first day Alinea opened, I thought was my last day of, of working at Alinea. Like my <laughs> goal, for real, like I was, it's actually um, today, 14 years ago today, May 4th. Oh, wow. Well, um, happy, happy anniversary. Yeah. So I'm headed over there this afternoon, um, give a little toast to the staff. Um, so 14 years ago today, um, we opened up and uh, barely had the place together. And of course, I had no idea what to do, right? And so you rely on people who are professionals within the industry to, you know, 
how do you book a restaurant? I mean, basic question, like, you know, how many people do you seat? You know, I think a lot of people think, well, you have 70 seats, say, in a restaurant. And so you let 70 people in. (laughs) And then those people kind of exit, and then you let in the next batch of people as those people exit. And certainly some restaurants do that, but it's a terrible way to do it. What you want to do uh, is stagger the the groups of folks as they sit right. down uh, so that you have a flow to the evening in the kitchen and uh, everyone can be serviced well. Right. Um, but the way in which you do that is much like seating an airline or something like that. Um, it's a stacking problem. Um, and so... You know, there, there are theoretical optimal ways of doing things like that. But in reality, of course, people uh, show up late or they cancel or their dog gets sick and throws up in the car, and then they decide not to show up. And uh, at a restaurant like Alinea or Next or many of the higher-end restaurants that we do, um, you know, one group of four not showing up for the night throws everything off right. at a level that people can't really understand. Um, when we first start opened Delinea, we would do about 80 people a night. So you can imagine that if you get two tables of four that don't show up, that's 10% of your revenue that goes right, away. Right. So I should do a little housekeeping. I realize I, I didn't have you introduce yourself. I, I assume everyone knows you, but by <laughs> no, your voice, that might be not. a little tough. So why don't you just state your name? I'll, I'll be the, um, you know, the in- interrogating attorney here. State your name and uh, why people should listen to you about these things. Well, they shouldn't. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, that's the, that's the rule of, of uh, the future, right? Like, don't listen to the past. Um, learn from it, but don't listen to it. Uh, my name's Nick Kokonis. I am uh, the co-owner of the Alinea Group and the uh, founder and CEO of TOC, uh, which is a reservation and booking system for, well, for hospitality, but we're actually starting to do some retail, too, which is kind of cool. So, um, Well, let's hold that. I want to talk about that, actually. Yeah. Um, so let's keep going with the reservations, though. Sorry to interrupt earlier. Oh, not at all. No. So, so anyway, so, you know, after, like, we were very fortunate that we'd have a lot of people calling every day. And the standard way to book reservations at the time was to have some portion of your inventory as, you know, online so that people could book it through OpenTable. And then, uh, you know, a lot of people call on the phone. Now, interesting little history tidbit that you probably don't know. Um, it used to be the case back in the 19th century and before, basically even in the 20th century, before the telephone was invented, that going out to dinner, if you weren't traveling, was considered kind of weird if you were well <laughs> off. Yeah. Um, if you were well off, you had someone that would cook for you and right. you would invite people to your home or you would be invited to someone's home. Um, if you did want to go, you were traveling, you would pay room and board and the board back, you know, the, the etymology of the word is that it's literally like a charcuterie board. It means that you want the food. Yep. Um, and you would prepay for that. Like you'd go, yep, I want the food. Here's a few, whatever dollars. And, uh, and then they would make, they'd purchase and make the food. There was the concept of waste was didn't really exist because everyone you knew who ordered the food before you ordered the food and made it and prepared it and served it. Right. Um, when the telephone was invented, that's when restaurants started booming um, and people would call and say, hold a table for me because I don't want to get there and not be able to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the same, <laughs> you know, from like 
1920 to 1998. And uh, the apocryphal story is that uh, Danny Meyer had a disgruntled employee who stole their black book, their reservation book, um, on his last day of work. And they had no idea who was coming in for the next few months. So do you want to tell people who Danny Meyer is? Yeah, Danny Meyer is um, the owner of uh, Union Square Hospitality Group in uh, New York City. Restaurants like Gramercy Tavern, um, you know, the modern places like that. Also founder of Shake Shack. So he's he's done really well on, on a lot of different levels in the hospitality industry. Anyway, so Danny, um, you know, there's a guy named Chuck Templeton here in Chicago that started Open Table. And then Danny um, adopted it because he was like, well, we should probably put this stuff on computers. Um, that stayed that way, you know, till the point where we opened up Alinea in 2005. And yeah. by 2008 or nine, I was very frustrated with the fact that we were getting hundreds of phone calls every day and telling people no, which is a bad experience, right? right. Um, we were also getting people who, who didn't believe you. So this is, the, this is the part that really put me over the edge. You could tell the truth to people, you know, that would call up and say, hey, it's my anniversary two weeks from Thursday. I'd like a, you know, a, a table for two for, at six o'clock. And you'd go, sorry, we're sold out for the next month and a half. And flat out, 99% of the people wouldn't believe you. And I couldn't really figure out why. Like, I would literally be on the phones myself, like talking to people saying, I swear to God, why would I turn away your business? I mean, think about that, right? Yeah. And they were going, well, if I was important, you'd make a table available. And I'm like, well, we only have 22 tables. Like, we only serve, you know, 80, 90 people a night. Um, and what I found was that people left that experience feeling lied to, cheated, right. disgruntled. Didn't I'll never go to your place. I mean, I had people yelling at me, I'm never coming there. If you don't let me in now, I'm never coming. I'm like, well, I can't do anything about that. And I recognized that the reason was is because there was something, there was like a fundamental flaw in the transparency of the way Open Table did business, which is that they they charge restaurants, um, well now between a dollar fifty and seven fifty per diner wow. that books. So it used to be a dollar, and they just upped it to an auction market um, a couple of weeks ago. But um, the interesting part of that is diners didn't know why. At a big restaurant, hey, that, that 8 o'clock table is never available, but if I call, I can get it. Right. So that that became habituated over a long period of time. And, um, you know, and we were a tiny restaurant, and people would get mad because they, they just thought, well, it worked everywhere else. It should work here. Right. So I, I decided to, like, you know, try to build our own system that just didn't charge me, obviously, because we owned it. <laughs> And, and put it online and just said, hey, here's everything we got. Take whatever you want. Yep. Don't call us on the phone. Here it is. The analogy I use is like, imagine if you want to buy a V-neck sweater. And you go into the V-neck sweater store and you can't see any sweaters. <laughs> and you go, hey, do you have a cashmere blue V-neck sweater in a medium? And they just go, nope, try again. Like, you know. And like clothing roulette. Right, yes. And so I think, um, you know, there's, there's whole TV shows, like whole skits on TV about getting into restaurants. And it shouldn't be that hard. It should be transparent. Um, and, you know, one of the things that people get on me about is they say, well, you hold tables back. And I said, we do so transparently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, of course, like we hold two tables a night for industry and press and, and whether the fishmonger doesn't deliver the fish, so we're not going to be able to have enough fish. Like right. basic stopgap me measures, you know. But, you know, I spent like ages talking to every software company, 
basically saying, I want to create models of prepayment. I want to have variable pricing so that, you know, it should be cheaper to dine at Alinea on Tuesday right. in February than on Saturday in July. Just like it is having a great seat, uh, you know, for a Cubs game. Sure. And one in the rafters. Like, no one up in the nosebleeds looks down at the guy sitting on the third baseline and goes, oh, that's totally unfair. Right. Like, you know, he paid $500 a seat. Like, like that's normal. So the, the 8 o'clock reservation on a Saturday should actually cost more than 9 p.m. on Tuesday. Yeah, and you, you give... Uh, lectures, right, for the restaurant industry about this? Yeah, it's amazing to me how controversial that statement is, like yeah. within the industry. What do, you, what do you hear when they, when like afterwards, if people come up to you? What well, they I, I think a lot of people go like, well, that works for you because you're a linea. That's what I hear most of anything. Yeah. And I said, no, 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 like you got that backwards. We're a linea because we do things like that, because we innovate and take risks. And what I'm starting to hear now, um, you know, talk is adding like four or five new restaurant and winery clients uh, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so about 150 last month. And so now what's happening is they go, okay, well, we'll use you for CRM, we'll use you for business intelligence and all the data and all that. And it's a really beautiful, elegant system, but we're not gonna do any prepaid experiences because we don't do that. And then I go like, well, you used Eventbrite for Mother's Day and, and Valentine's Day and New Year's Eve last year. Why don't you use Talk for that? Oh, okay, you're right, yeah, we'll use that. Yeah. And then they go like, well, you have that chef's counter. Why don't you, why don't you put that on as a separate experience? Yeah. So like people want to be able to buy great experiences, right? Yeah. I mean, and if you think about it, the, the, as labor is automated, you might automate some cooking, right? You might have the robotic cooking and all that. Yeah, I guess you might even have robotic waiters at some point. But the human touch there is going to be around for quite a while, I think. Yeah, agreed. And at a high-end restaurant, Part of what makes the experience great is all those little touch points that they do, right? Indeed. We just were uh, a guest at Alinea very recently, and I have to say, every detail is really looked at. So, I, you know, I commend you on that. So we were at the little table in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and, you know, the lights would change based on the, you know, the course, and music would change, and the staffing would kind of appear around you. And, you know, and it was different every time. It wasn't like the same rote behavior every course. So, yeah, it was a, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, we, we try to hire, hire intelligent people and let them be intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds and, like crazy talk. Yeah, I know. It's crazy talk, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's like there's nothing worse than hearing, uh, you know, the specials of the day five times exactly the same from the same guy. Yeah. Not that we have specials there, but you know what I mean. I do. And, you know, the, at the end of the day, we want people to really have a deep knowledge of what they do and then be themselves. Which also means that when you make a mistake, which inevitably happens, you acknowledge it, you make it right, and you kind of laugh about it. So going back to, to talk, when you um, started to, when you decided, I need to build this myself, what was the process you went through, um, not only in kind of figuring out what the steps you needed to take to even start this uh, endeavor, but then as you were designing, like what were, the, what were the iterations you went through? What, were the, what was the thought process as you were developing it? And I know you worked with a single programmer, is that correct, when you first built it? Yeah, I mean, the first version was garage, you know, startup 101 garbage product, you know. We call that a prototype. Yeah, well, yeah, it was, I wouldn't even call it that. Um, it was like, 
I talked to executives at OpenTable saying, give me access to your API. Let me build some add-ons that do some functionality that we want. And they said, no, no thanks. Talk to a bunch of theater ticketing companies. Talk to boy, you know, any version of a company that could do a time-slotted ticket. Mm-hmm. I talked to. And they all either were like, oh, you can use it as is, but you can't modify it. Nothing fit. If you think about the way an inventory works, you have tables that might be available two or three times a night, and you might have 30 of those tables, right? And they're different every day of the week. It's not like a theater where there's fixed seats and the show starts at seven, you know, and that's it for the night. Um, So none of it really worked well uh, for it. OpenTable wouldn't let me build anything onto it. So I kind of just went, well, I'm gonna have to do this myself because I stuck my neck out there and said, I'm gonna do this. How hard can it be? <laughs> and, and the truth is, maybe a little hard. Well, it's like everything. It's it's harder than you think. And so I, I literally just got out first graph paper and just drew out like flowcharts of yep. everything that needed to happen. And then I was like, well, we're going to need to take online payments. And those payments are going to need to be authorized. So, you know, I don't want to be the clearing firm for that. Right. So we're going to, at the time, we used authorized.net, you know. Yep. Um, this is pre-Stripe and Braintree and all that. Um, and so I realized that I was not going to be able to do this on my own remotely, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I at first thought I was going to hire an outside development firm. Uh, and I looked at a couple in Chicago where I knew the principals, and, you know, they were looking like at me like, you need this in six weeks? Are you kidding? And I was like, no. And they're like, well, this is a six-month, $750,000 to $1 million project. Yep. And I was just going like, no, I think we could do this faster and cheaper, and it just needs to do this one thing well, and I don't need all the bells and whistles. It just needs to you know, show the inventory and function. You yeah, know, and so right? that's one of those moments where you were both right Oh, and very, I was, I was wrong and very wrong. I don't know if there's any right. But I did find a, a guy who was a friend of a friend who did some database development for Fidelity. So he kind of knew like how to tie in some payment stuff. And he kind of sat down and gave the old like, yeah, totally doable. And I was just going like, really? Yeah, and you really wanted to believe him too. I did want to believe him. But I also, I also did and didn't, right? But I also like, I just took it. In any sort of thing like this, you just got to boil it down to its essence and go, what are the three things it needs to do to the exclusion of all else, right? So like one of those things, to give you an example, was don't sell the same table to two different people. (laughs) (laughs) That seems basic. (laughs) uh, Right, but I mean, think about that. Like what are the rules that it absolutely cannot violate? And the nightmare, if you're a restaurant owner, is to have two groups of people for every table. Right. Because people are going to be very angry. You know, and then it, need to sh- it needed to show every night, very simply. Yep. Um, I, I came up with a very simple nomenclature, which was basically, you know, green is available. Green, you can go. Yellow is a chef or manager hold, not available to the public, and red is sold. That's it. Like, still the case eight years later. Yep. And uh, I set up, like, part of the stuff on Rackspace, and this, this programmer would go away for two weeks and say, yeah, yeah I'm working on it. And then, you know, you can't really look at anything, right? Because right. it's like, you know, a lot. it's like 
the, the part you see is the last thing that you do. Right, right? when he hits compile and then. Right, right. Yeah. So long story short, we were days away and didn't really have anything going. And Grant Ackett's, um, my partner, obviously the yep. chef, was saying, hey, we're opening in two days. How many, how many reservations do we have? And this was when you were opening next? Next, yeah. Okay. In 2011. And uh, I was like, just plan for a full house. And he was like, well, does it work? And I was like, no, it doesn't really exist yet. <laughs> so I was at my house, um, not really being able to contribute much, honestly. Um, and this guy was out in the wild. Um, and uh, we finally got something that like we could test and, and, and work and put it up you know, into the cloud and put it up on the website that we could see. And, and you know, it appeared as though we could make test purchases and all that. And we had about, you know, 20,000 people over the course of the year that signed up to be notified when, when tickets went on sale, when wow. bookings were available. Um, I built, I did like a little video with Martin Kastner uh, uh, as a promo for the restaurant, like a trailer, like a movie trailer. <laughs> and we, we got over 20,000 people to sign up saying, notify me when, when this thing opens. Um, and, I, you know, what, what's the response rate on something like that usually, right? Like yeah. really small. 3%? Yeah. It's I mean, a really t- good response Three rate. response would be an awesome response rate, right? So I figured we'll get five or six or 700 people that, that go online to yep. book. So the day we're opening the restaurant, oh, I, I should add that Grant, I said to Grant, well, the backup is that we just open the phone lines, like if this right. doesn't work. But here's the thing. I didn't order phone lines. <laughs> Trust the, me. Well, no, I, I did that. You know how we were talking about constraints, the yeah. analog constraints? Yep. That was the constraint I put on myself. Like, I knew that if I had the crutch of the phones, yeah. I would open the restaurant and say, well, for the first week, we'll use the phones. Yeah. And the second week, we'll use the phones, right? Yeah, so that's that's the Cortez strategy. I don't know if you... I don't, I don't, but so I, I want to know it now. <laughs> so when Cortez came to the New World, right down in Florida... He oh, he burnt his ships. Exactly. Yeah, I did yeah. know that. You yeah, have yeah, no yeah. other choice but to make it work. You will make it work, yes. The ships are gone. Now, you could, there's a lot about Cortez that, that uh, we should probably... Um, Yes, despise, I d- but but it's an interesting strategy and it's a good reference. Yeah, it's not exactly the leadership qualities that no people <laughs> reach out for these days. Um, I don't think that would go over with, well with the millennials. No, not like we're going Cortez here. Yeah, you? no. Um, but uh, yeah, I we went Cortez and we had no we we had no phones and put the thing online and seven eight thousand people logged in instantly. And here's the other thing. The controls were on the same server. The server was supposed to self-propagate oh, new yeah. instances. Like on Rackspace? Yes. Yeah. And it was supposed to um, create new instances. Yeah, and scale properly. And scale properly, which it, it did not do. <laughs> so I could, here's the, the thing. I couldn't log into it to manually scale it or shut off or reconfigure any of the controls because essentially it was like a denial of service attack. Right. Right. Like I just couldn't get into my own system. So I went on Facebook. This is 2011. Yeah. Created a Facebook page for next. And as people were emailing, I had an auto response saying, go to this Facebook page. And I said, everyone, please stop hitting refresh, please. I will have this fixed. Um, as soon as we got it going, um, it started working. And there was probably two hours there that I was very <laughs> terrified. Yeah. 
and frustrated. And then all of a sudden it started working. And it didn't kind of start working. It really worked. It was like watching, it was like all these greens starting to turn to red. Yeah. And then the authorized.net account just pouring transactions down the page. Bonus, yeah. And it was like, holy shit, people are willing to do this. I thought so. Yeah. But I didn't know, right? And then I called Grant and said, come to my house. Yeah. And he said, well, I'm, we're opening a restaurant tonight. And I said, you have to come to your, my house. He's like, I'm not coming to your house. I'm like, as the guy who saved your life, get in a fucking cab. Like, come to my house. So he, so he did. And I must have looked really weird because I hadn't, like, showered in three days and, you know, was ragged trying to get this thing going. Yeah. And I told him to double-click the green, the uh, yellow one to turn it green, and it instantaneously turned red. And he was like, what happened? I'm like, someone bought it. He's like, what do you mean someone bought it? It, like, it was a millisecond, you yeah. know? And I go, do it again. Any table you want for as far into the future as you want, someone will buy it. And that was the moment I went, this will fundamentally change the way people book restaurants. Um, it has been eight years, and we have not yet fundamentally changed the way yeah. people book restaurants. But we have built you know, an 88-person company uh, at this point around that. And we process, we'll probably process about $500 million of prepaid and deposit reservations now, in addition to millions and millions and millions of free ones in 22 countries. So it's, it's working. But, you know, anytime you have a, a large user base and incumbency right. with a giant company like booking.com, um, they're not going to sit there and go, you know, but weirdly they have not been able to, so they own this thing called Guest Center. Mm-hmm. They're transitioning everyone off open table to Guest Center. Guest Center itself is seven or eight year old technology. It sits on an iPad. It is not a cloud-based system in wow. the true sense of the word. And it has limitations of um, like PCI compliance limitations and whatnot. They can't really do payments. And because the user base is installed in 28,000 plus restaurants in the United States, if those restaurants are forced to switch or forced to pay more, they look at other systems now. Right. Which is great. So um, you're, you're, you're um, just standing with open arms waiting for them? Yeah, well, and, and running to them and saying, hug me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're not waiting around for them to come to us, that's right. for sure. Anytime you're trying to make a, a massive change in the way a business works. Um, but these are high expense, low margin businesses. And as uh, minimum wage goes up, as tipped minimum wage goes away, so that everyone earns full minimum wage, tipping will go away for restaurants over a $20 check average. Um, benefits, employee benefits, yeah. all of those sorts of things. So, um, you know, yield efficiency has to improve in the hospitality industry. Yeah. And so uh, I, I think what we're doing, we may not win, but what we're building is inevitable. Yeah. And it's interesting you brought up tipping. And that's something that uh, when I think of experiences like Uber, uh, you know, people talk about the app. But the truth is that, at least in my opinion, what Uber was solving for are were those social discomforts around taking a cab, right? So standing on a street corner, waving your hand and feeling like an idiot, right, when the cab goes by you. And that moment when you're getting out of a cab, what do I got to I got to do math now and tip. If you can kind of automate that stuff or remove it from that cognitive load, uh, you get, you know, a much more satisfying experience. And and tipping is one of those things that I'm I guess I'm waiting for, you know, also to be removed from. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, over the Fair Labor Standards Act is uh, the FLSA governs all 
workers in, in, in the United States of America. And there is a special class of workers, which is the service industry. Yep. I am not allowed to pay a server a salary and bonus in the United States. Very interesting. So someone who is as professional as a captain, meaning the top server in a section at, at Alinea, Michelin mm-hmm. three-star restaurant, expected to make six figures, right? Yeah. If he were an accountant, lawyer, a writer for a, a tiny little you know, newspaper in some small town or something like that, mm-hmm. you could basically say, I'll pay you $50,000 in a discretionary bonus. And they could work 100 hours a week. Doesn't matter how much they work. Right. That guy needs to be hourly. And I'm telling you right now, that person, when when you do the math and you say like, well, that works out to $28 an hour plus overtime, which is 20 hours a week at, you know, f- was at uh, $42 an hour, right? Yeah. Um, that's demeaning in a way. Yeah. Like they don't do, they don't want to do that math. They want the security of, you know, so we provide healthcare 401k matching up to 4% of what they earn, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, very progressive company. That said, like, I should be able to plan my business around salaries and bonuses. Yeah. N- and shared what success. Yeah, knowing what your, you know, cash flow looks yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's illegal. And in New York City, you can't even do a service charge. So you can't say there's a mandatory service charge we're getting rid of tipping. You have to either bake it into the price of the food yeah. and eliminate it altogether, which makes you non-competitive because consumers don't look at, like, a $14 hamburger and go, oh, well, that's got the tip baked in, so it's the same as the $12 right. hamburger down the street. It's a mess and something that needs to be fixed. I'm not holding my breath, by the way. So let's talk a little bit about, and I wanted to go back to kind of designing an experience that is more physical, right, and the service experience. So are there any kind of um, heuristics or rules that you have, you know, maybe explicitly or implicitly when you're imagining the businesses you have now or when you're thinking about expanding like how you're going to set up service in a way that is you know uh customer focused more than uh traditional what we try to do what i try to do whenever we're starting something new is i try to figure out what do i want the person to feel like emotionally <laughs> that that's funny you say that because uh, in our process we have an innovation process and ultimately we say the best thing you can do is develop the emotional requirements for an experience first Right. And then you can figure out the technology. So it sounds like a similar approach. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Like you're dealing with humans and humans. Hopefully, yes. Well, well, yeah, right. Um, in, in our case, we're mostly dealing with humans. We have had some people bring dogs, which is weird. Um, <laughs> but time for a different story. Yeah. But, um, you know, I. I want to create uh either an emotion or a series of emotions when people come to dine with us. The reason I was so attracted to what Grant was doing, I was not in the restaurant industry before building Linea with Grant, is that he was creating an emotional experience in dining. And, and he stated as much. Like, and he did that pretty intuitively, you know. And part of that, you know, I studied a lot of theater when I was in college. And anytime you look at, like, a good script or, or you know, for a movie or you know, a, a great play or, or whatever it may be, you're creating tension and relieving it, mm-hmm. right? You can't just go like, whew, that's a relief. Like, start <laughs> yeah. with the relief, yeah, right? Yeah, that's a crappy play, right? Yeah, right. You can't just, whoa, everything resolves instantly and everything's comfy. Um, although Beckett kind of did that, I guess. <laughs> but then it created <laughs> a sort of different... Beckett just kind of put you in a static spot and, and watched you writhe. Yes, right. So, so I guess there are, like, you know postmodern folks that try to do that sort of thing. But basically, we're going to have you in a seat 
for a couple hours at Alinea, say two and a half hours. And we want you to have an experience that is as good of, of an, a dining experience as you're ever going to have. And part of that is, is like, I mean, if, if you ask someone, what's the best dining experience you've ever had? Often you'll hear a story that they say, I was traveling and in X place. So right. they're already somewhere unfamiliar. And we were looking to go to eat and we couldn't, we had no idea where to go. And we didn't know what was good. And we stumbled into this place that looked terrible. And oh my God, it was amazing. Yeah. Right? And so if you break down what happened in that story is we're in a place where we don't understand what's going on and we don't speak the language, so we're uncomfortable. We then go into a place that feels sketchy, <laughs> right? <laughs> just a or, little. Or just, yeah, or it wasn't like high-end or what, you know, it wasn't what we were comfortable and used to. And then we were welcomed so with such warmth and the food was delicious and it was homemade and it was inexpensive and all these things, right? And then you kind of go like, well, was it really that the food was that good or was it that also you had the tension beforehand, right? which made the food seem even improbably better, right? Yeah. So that's the way I started thinking about our experiences at Trio when we went to Trio when Grant was there. Trio was in the suburbs of Chicago and was very much not an expected place. Mm -hmm. And you'd go in there and it was a little rinky-dink too, you know? And then all this great, 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 amazing stuff would come out of the kitchen. And some of that stuff itself was like a microcosm of the same experience. Like you'd look at it and you go, I don't even know what that is. That makes me uncomfortable. And then you'd take a bite and it would be delicious, right? Yeah. Or sometimes the opposite would happen. You'd look at something that looked like comfort food, a piece of pound cake, mm -hmm. and you'd eat it and you'd be like, whoa, that's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't bad. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it was just, it was confounding your expectations. Yeah. So as we started building Alinea, we started trying to, to create tension and relieve it um, and do so in very purposeful ways. Mm -hmm. So that's building our own serviceware, building, meaning like plates or yep. not plates, making people eat off things that they're not comfortable eating off of. The front hallway experience that we had uh, what we, when we rebuilt the entire restaurant in 2016, we wanted to do that again, but in a way that was less predictable yep. for people. And so I don't even want to say what that is because that'll ruin the surprise. But if you yes. have our gallery experience, you will be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's never dull, I'm sure. At Alinea, we've had everything happen that you can imagine. We serve something like, uh, well, now about 800 people a week. So when you multiply that out, that's a lot of people uh, annually. And everything that you can imagine that could happen has happened. And things that you can't imagine happening have happened. <laughs> so we've had people, we had the, the issue of the crying baby, which made international news. It was in over 2,000 newspapers. Um, all because someone brought like a, a four-month-old baby to Alinea. Right. Um, who was, the baby was very upset uh, and crying. And that's fine. That's what babies are it's supposed to do. It's the tension you were creating, I'm that's sure. It. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, felt tension, could not palpably relieve it by eating the food. So stayed tensionful. And uh, holy cow, screaming baby, right? Yeah. Everyone around them is, they're getting engaged or celebrating their special occasion. And it's like suddenly being trapped in coach on an airline with a five-hour flight with a, with a baby. And the most amazing thing is that the parents did not do the, the thing where that you take turns and take the baby out. They handed the baby to the staff. You know, we're trying to eat here. Do something. I swear <laughs> to God. So after a couple rounds of this, 
we were kind of like, maybe you should go, right? Yeah. Um, Grant tweeted, someone brought a crying baby to Alinea. What should be the policy in such a situation? Yeah. Um, that was the entirety of the tweet, more or less. That was on Good Morning America the next day. Wow. Literally. For some reason that, you know, that touched off a thing like, well, people should be able to go out to eat and bring a baby. And it's like, well, sure, I agree. We always brought our kids out to dinner, but probably didn't bring them to, you know, a Michelin-starred restaurant when they were four months old. Or if we did and they started screaming, one of us walked up and down the street, right. took turns eating, all that sort of stuff, right? Um, they just didn't have care for the folks around them. The baby, like, you know, you can't say leave the baby outside kind of thing, right? <laughs> so, although they do do that. They do that in Scandinavia where they, where they you know, they have the, the, that thought where they leave the babies out in the cold while they get a coffee. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. That's, and, a, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, so um, not here, though, so not it's in Chicago. It's different here. It's different here. <laughs> the DCFS is yeah. there really fast. Yeah. As soon as you tie that baby's leash around the, <laughs> the parking sign, that's they, right. get, they get all upset. They do, yes. So, um, yeah, so, and we've had, oh, my God, we've, we have, I'll tell you what happens. We, we have people that intentionally feign really fast onset foodborne illness by going out in front and sticking their finger down the throat and throwing up and then trying to get the meal for free. That's a regular occurrence. Wow. Um, we, we, and I, how do we know this? Well, after it happens once or twice and foodborne illness, by the way, folks, Except eight hours, right? Oh, at least. Yeah. It's, it's eight to 24 yeah. with a couple exceptions. Um, if you, uh, abalone being one of them, there's a, there is some, uh, bacteria that can, um, be an algae that's that abalone process um so you can get very fast onset reactions to a few things yeah um but very few and we don't really serve them much anymore because of that because you know even no matter what your cleanliness standard is if someone is allergic to abalone and doesn't know it because they haven't eaten it before that can become really nasty that said most foodborne illness when people complain they said hey we got sick after our dinner at alinea it's like well you ate 22 courses and had 18 glasses of wine maybe you should have tempered yourself a little bit um that's just gluttony not foodborne illness right. um but the, there's a lot of folks who who feign problems in order to get free meals um not, when i say a lot i mean like one half of one percent right but that means there's two a week so it's kind of nuts you know and the other thing is is like sometimes people email you 20 days later saying oh, man, we got really sick after our meal at Alinea. And it's like, well, why did you wait 20 days yeah. until your credit card showed up? Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, to, to let us know. Um, but, you know, it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm really not. I, it, it's kind of like one of those things, like you serve a lot of people, and so you see a little bit of everything. And law of large numbers issue. It is the law of yeah. large numbers. And it's, it's, at, at times it's funny in the, the lack of creativity if you're going to try to get a free meal from me, be a little creative. Yeah, yeah. So right. one more thing I just wanted to cover is you've brought up a couple of times when you're talking about talk, uh, it was transparency. And it it feels to me like you build that into the physical experience as well. Uh, at Alinea, you bring tables into the kitchen, right, at one point during the, the service. At the aviary, right, you can see everything being created. So Talk about a little bit how you feel transparency feeds into your um, expectation equation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the experience design we were talking about, which is I remember in 95 or 6, I went to Charlie Trotter's, you know. Yep. And they had one of those swinging kitchen doors, as I recall. Now, it may not have been a swing. It may have gone one way, but I remember it as a swinging door. And you knew there was a kitchen table in there 
and you knew that there was like this group of people back there producing this food, right? Yep. So every time that door would open, everybody's heads would turn that way and they'd try to get a peek of the kitchen. And so I was just like, well, that's, that's cool. Like yeah. that's like, that's where the magic happens. Right. And then they would always give you a little tour afterwards and you'd walk in and they'd be cleaning at that point. You couldn't really see anybody cooking. Right. And it was kind of like, well, why don't we just make that available to everybody? You know, like why yeah. only the people in the kitchen? And, and the answer is a lot of times people don't want people to see in their kitchen. Right. Right. It's like, there's a reason for it. Yeah. I've watched enough restaurant impossible, <laughs> right. To, uh, to see that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think a lot of times the kitchen's kind of this hidden thing and you go like, yeah, don't, don't look where the sausage is made. We're, we're the opposite. We're like, Hey, we have an absolutely spick span, you know, beautiful kitchen and it works like a, a Swiss watchmakers facility. Yep. And part of the experience of seeing, you know, every now and then we get, we get someone who says like, you know, it's just wrong that you charge $265 for dinner. And they don't mean wrong in the sense of like, like people are starving and right. like, you know, it's unethical. They mean like, boy, you must be raking it in, you know, at $265 yeah. a person. And then they have no idea that they think literally that it's Grant back there. <laughs> yeah. Solo. Like the number of people go like, we'd like to hire Grant to cook a dinner for 40 people, like an Alinea dinner at our house for 40 people. We're willing to pay him $10,000. And it's like, okay, what about the other 50 people we need to do that? Yeah. Like they have no concept of the fact. And the facilities and the, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so part of it, it's like, wow, look at what goes into making one dish. There might be four people that work from five in the morning, two shifts, two different shifts of four people for a single dish at Alinea. Wow. That goes out. And um, we had this one dish called, uh, for a number of years called Lamb 86. And it was the 86 things that taste great with lamb. Oh, wow. So it was the simplest preparation of lamb, like, you know, just the loin of lamb, mm -hmm. very basic. And then manipulated forms of everything that would taste good with lamb. Tarragon. The mint was powdered, like mm -hmm. all that. And they literally had this piece of glass and they would put it down and there'd be no names on what any of it was. And none uh -huh. of it looked like what it was supposed to look like. If you, you know, get on Google, type in Alinea Lamb 86, you'll see it. And they literally had like fishing tackle boxes <laughs> because organizing these 86 different ingredients was insane. And that went out to every single table every night. Um, that was nuts. Like that was just like a level of complexity that you really can't imagine. So I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Well, uh, you can ask me anything. I don't <laughs> care. So when uh, someone wants to get into doing anything, really, you know, change, change an industry, come up with a new business idea, what are three rules that you kind of have internalized about doing that? And maybe even throw in, maybe these are rules you live your life by, right? So if you could do the heuristic of Nick Kakonis. Wow. Oh, that's big. It is big. Um, I can edit the pauses out too. Yeah, no, no, to no, no, no. <laughs> no, I mean the pauses are real because it's a that's a big um, that's a big question. I, I think, um, boy, like you know, I part of what I, I always try to do is, um, well, first, Occam's razor. Mm -hmm. 
you know, simplest explanations probably is probably the best. Right. Um, so whenever you go, like one of the games I like to play with myself whenever I go into some new business is try to figure out the business, but mm-hmm. do so so it would fit on like an index card. Yep. So if I go into a retail store, especially if I can't figure it out, like I'm like going like, I don't know how this place makes money. Right. Well, that's me in every retail outlet, right, yes, by the way. Yes, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I all the time. So that's the way, like, I go into, like, let's say a, a taco stand. So right. I know the restaurant business really well, right? And, you know, someone's like, wow, they're killing it. There's a line down the street. And I'm like, they'd be better off if there was no line. Like, like basic little things like that going, what is optimal, right? Right. So... So part of it is that the simplest explanation usually is is the best. And and I always am trying to go, how can I simplify this down to its component parts mm-hmm. to understand how this works, either as a business or, you know, we were talking about music earlier. Like, it's amazing when you pull out classic songs and you can pull out the, the tracks out of them. Yeah. And you listen to a guitar part and it like on like a funk song that you're like, wow, that's complicated. And then you listen to it, and it's literally just one chord with an octave right. strummed really well at exactly the right moments. And it doesn't really do anything else. And so it's kind of the same thing with any business or any industry. I'm always kind of like, what could you do that would be fundamentally different and better? Um, and then for me personally, I have to want to wake up in the morning thinking about the problem. Right. Like, I don't want to work on stuff that feels like a chore. Now, anytime you start a business, there will be a lot of stuff that feels like a chore. Yeah. But the overall overarching goal needs to feel exciting. And it needs to feel exciting for a long time. Because if it doesn't, you're going to suck at it. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just true, yeah. right? Like, I, I did not want to start talk. Um, I waited five years and gave away all the ideas. I wrote long blog posts that like a million people read. Yeah. And then they still started the wrong companies trying to copy it. And so I was like, oh, they're fundamentally misunderstanding what's, what's the solved problem here. And it's not getting restaurants more money on Saturday night. It's actually filling restaurants on a Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Yep. Anybody, any busy restaurant could charge more on a Saturday night and make a little more money. But what they really need to do is get those folks to come in on Tuesday at 9 p.m. Everyone else tried to solve for the Saturday night problem. That's not a problem. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, right. That's easy, right? Yeah, it's so, like looking for your keys where the light is as yeah. opposed to where you lost them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, end of the day, like, I want to wake up and have a problem that I'm thinking about all the time for a long period of time. And if I can do that, then I kind of go like, oh, shit, I got to do this. Yep. And, and it's almost begrudgingly so. Like, the Alinea was built because I would wake up every day going, somebody needs to do something with Grant. Yeah. This guy's so good. And he's, he's kind of stuck in the burbs. And he's the best chef in the United States right now, and no one knows it. Very few people know it. Yeah. You know, that's the way I was with when, when I, was, I was a derivatives trader. I'd look at, like, human behavior and emotion and find arbitrage opportunities based on that rather than just straight quant stuff. You know, the way you described Grant reminds me of, I don't know if you read Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. I did, yeah. It's that, what's that secret that you know that no one else knows? And you had Grant. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's like what's interesting now is 14 years later, for the first four years, I did all the marketing. 
every single interview he did, we tried to do via email so that uh, we could craft a political campaign-like set of messaging. We didn't use the word avant-garde. Like Grant used like to use the word avant-garde. And I was like, you know, shoot you with a BB gun every time you say avant-garde. We say innovative. And then there are two words that you will hear in every interview. So I'm getting them in right now. Fun and delicious. <laughs> it, it, it was indeed. Right, but here's the thing. People don't think of fine dining as fun and delicious. They f- think of it almost like a chore, unless they're re- or pretentious, or and they might think of it as delicious, but they'll think of it also as expensively delicious, right? Yeah. Um, but what we want people to walk away from is like, wow, that was way more fun than I expected, and that was delicious. So the three words in every single interview, over and over and over again, when we first opened the restaurant, was fun, delicious, innovative. Yep. That's it. Yeah. And so we just beat beat that into the ground seems like you're applying it every time you open a new property as well so try we try we're doing a new project now like the so here i'll tell you about something that didn't work okay perfect um we opened royster which worked um it's our casual restaurant built around uh, an open kitchen Mm -hmm. and the idea that i wanted to do was i wanted to build a restaurant where you couldn't tell where the kitchen was versus the dining room Now, we were not able to do that, Um, but that was the original conceit, was I drew up on a piece of paper, like, this sketch of, like, hey, there's a meat station, and there's a bunch of, you know, tables over there. I think that's Old Country Buffet. Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) High-end Old Country Buffet. There's nothing wrong with that. And um, I thought that would be really cool, because everybody would have a kitchen table, essentially, right? And then the realities of, like, building a a hearth and fire and and ventilations and safety codes and all that meant that we kind of had to centrally locate this giant kitchen, but it's still wide open in a way that no other kitchen in Chicago really is. And um, we did the basement, and we built a second whole kitchen down there and did kind of like a sushi-style counter. But our intent was to serve the very same food, but we didn't have the the giant hearth fireplace downstairs because we can't. We thought the basement would feel more intimate and, and all of that, but everyone wanted to eat upstairs. And then we tried doing tasting menus only downstairs and everyone was like well this is a casual restaurant i don't really want a, a, t- a tasting menu right in a basement so we basically stopped serving the basement because no one wanted to serve down there yeah. and obviously that's less labor so the restaurant's doing really well and it's fine and all that but we have this basement and giant kitchen so in a couple of weeks not yet not now but in a couple of weeks we will announce that we are doing something completely cool and different in the basement and we're gutting the thing and redoing it. And so by mid-June or so, it should be open. By mid-June, we will all be turning the squares red. I hope so, yes. Um, and it will be for about 32 people a night and um, really like a Midwest kind of uh, vibe um, from the woods of Wisconsin and Michigan. Oh, wow. All um, right. You know, which is more akin to what should be in a basement. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, it was some uh, uh, nutty pine paneling and a foosball table. Well, all correct except for the foosball table. <laughs> Douglas fir. Oh, nice, nice. So, all right. Is there any one? Uh, I'll, I'll stop taking up your time because you are one of the busiest people I know. So, what thought would you like to leave our listeners with today? About could be about innovation, about life. What what parting thought? Be fun and delicious. <laughs> I'm like laughing because it's just so, um, you know, I make more music. Well, because I'm looking at here, all obviously. this music. And so that's, I'm laughing because that's what came to my head. Oh, 
That's good. And I'm going I'm to stick with that one. I love it. Well, thanks so much. Well, thank you, Nick. And I appreciate you coming down uh, to the podcast studio. And uh, It's really nice in here, for those of you who can't see it. You should put up some pictures. I, I probably will. What I neglected to do was to have the recording rolling while, you know, you had the, the telly Well, that's probably up. a very good thing. <laughs> All right. Well, thank thanks you. Thanks so much. And uh, watch the interweb tubes for this episode. Awesome. All thank right. you. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Brilliant is a production of Manani, an experienced design and strategy firm in Chicago. Learn more at magnani.com.